Hi, you're listening to Vampires, Witches, and Geeks. I'm Morvan Westfield, author of Darks and Thirst and The Old Power Returns, two novels involving vampires and the witches and geeks who battle them. This podcast covers fictional vampires and modern witches, with a bit of geektitude thrown in. I hope you enjoy this episode. I look forward to hearing from you. You can leave comments at podcast.morganwestfield.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Episode 3 of Vampires, Witches, and Geeks. Tonight we have a special treat for you, an interview with writer, researcher, and publisher Anana Arthen. Anana began studying vampire literature and folklore in the 1960s when she persuaded a reluctant librarian to allow her to borrow Montague Summers' The Vampire in Europe, and an unabridged copy of Dracula from the adult stacks. In 1987, the editor of Fireheart magazine asked Anana to write an article about her researches into vampires as an occult phenomenon. The article, Real Vampires, was published in issue number two of Fireheart, but found a global audience when it was first placed online in early 1997. Anana, okay, you're a writer... You started your own publishing company by Light Unseen Media, all vampires all the time, and you're a vampire researcher. Tonight I'd like to talk to you in your role as a writer of vampire fiction. You wrote Mortal Touch, which was published in July 2007, right? Yes. Just a year ago. Happy anniversary. Well, thank you. And you're now working on the second novel, The Longer the Fall, right? That's correct. Okay. Now, in writing vampire fiction, each writer chooses the rules that govern his or her vampire universe. For example, my vampires are immortal, they can't go out in the sunlight, and they have fangs. Mine have to be invited in, unless it's a public place. Let's talk a little about the rules for your vampires and why you chose the characteristics you did. And feel free at any time not to answer if your answer would be a spoiler. Okay. okay. And first question, are your vampires mortal or immortal? Well, they are uh, immortal uh, vampires in the sense that they do not uh, age uh, like ordinary people. That, yeah, I, actually that's probably a good clarification because most vampires can be killed in some fashion, so that would right. make them... But you're right, they don't age and they're not affected by di- normal human diseases, right? Uh, correct. Okay. Yes, they're they're immune to diseases. Uh, they heal rapidly from most injuries and so on and so forth. Sort of like the conventions that many people have become accustomed to expect in their vampire fiction. Now, could they regenerate a limb or? You know, to tell you the truth, I have not thought through that particular issue. It hasn't come up yet in the stories, so that may be something I desi- I decide further down the road. But they can, like, for instance, you know, if they're, um, let's say, stabbed in the stomach or somebody shoots them with a machine gun, they can, they can heal and recover from that. They can heal, uh, yes, and they will heal at an accelerated rate uh, than, than they would, a normal person would, and certainly survive injuries that a normal person or a living person would not survive. Okay. And what things can kill, permanently kill a vampire? Uh, for example, what about the wooden stake? Well, again, my universe is unique in many respects, and that actually has a lot to do with my motivations in creating this series. 
uh, I was going back to some of the original folklore motifs and getting away from some of the cliches or not to be so unkind as cliche, but just some of the conventions that have become so common in vampire fiction. Because many of those conventions were actually invented by Bram Stoker for Dracula and were invented in later time periods and really did not have much to do with original vampire folklore at all. So I was going back and looking at some of the original folklore motifs and what they said about what vampires were expected to be able to do or did not do. And generally speaking, one of the things that made the folklore vampires so darn scary was that nothing worked on them. That they were, there were all these anti-vampire or anti-evil methods that were used to try to keep them away that generally speaking were ineffective that uh, there were no rules that really worked. People tried everything mostly because they had religious rules that prevented them from doing the only thing that really did work, which was to burn the vampire's body to ashes. But this was forbidden in Orthodox Christianity. And Orthodox Christian regions of Europe were mostly where the vampire legends began. So they tried all these different things short of that in an effort to stop the vampires from coming back from the grave and or bothering people or harming their victims. And generally speaking, all of the things that they tried failed until they finally got desperate enough to burn the body. So when I was looking at those old folklore stories and those old accounts of the vampire panics, and that's what I was kind of drawing in and attempting to tell the empire stories that looked at questions of life and death and hard choices of life and death as they might be presented to people in the modern day world who had this sort of extraordinary event happen in their lives. So my characters are very complicated and the rules shift and change and, and they're different book to book. And one of the things I'll be doing as my series goes along is reconciling the different experiences that the different vampires in the book have and showing how those all originate with uh, a core event or a core reality, but it's different for every one of them. Now, one of the things you're talking about, the old, um, the old folk beliefs, one of the ones that I kept seeing that seemed to be pretty common that was that beheading would work. The beheading was a variation on uh, dismemberment in general. And dismembering the body was a method of preventing the body from walking. It often was ineffective. It, just like staking was often ineffective, staking was primarily intended to physically hold the body into the ground. And it was very common when a criminal was buried or a person who had died an untimely death or an unnatural death, a person who had been accused of witchcraft or sorcery, a person who had committed suicide, these were all people who were considered to be at risk of coming back and bothering the community. So they tended to be buried at crossroads because the idea was that when they came out of the grave, which they were expected to do, at the crossroads, they would not know which direction to go and they would spend a lot of time trying to decide which direction to go because there were so many choices available to them. They would be uh, partially dismembered and the bones would be mixed up, the, the shins would be crossed on the chest, for example, and this was intended to 
prevent them from easily climbing out of their graves. There was a sense that they might still be able to, to reassemble themselves and get out, but this made it much less likely. And the beheading was actually a uh, variation on the dismemberment, that they would behead the, behead the body and they would put the head between the knees because this was confusing and the, the, the spirit of the vampire would not be able to figure out how to get out of the grave when its head was in the wrong place. Uh, okay, what about the sun? Are your vampires affected by the sun or can they walk in the daylight? No, my vampires uh, can, are, are sensitive to the sun in the way that a nocturnal being would be. That is, they're very, they're, they have good night vision, so bright light it makes it difficult for them to see. Uh, and they do uh, burn in the sunlight over a period of time, just like a very, very light-skinned human being would do. However, the, the sun superstition or the sun legend was entirely invented in fiction. That was actually invented by F.W. Murnau for his silent movie Nosferatu. Prior to that, even fictional vampires were not affected by the sun. Dracula walks around in the daytime. If you read Stoker's novel Dracula, he appears in the daytime on several occasions. And all previous fictional vampires appeared in the daylight. You look at Lord Ruven, uh, Carmilla, the classic vampire stories. They all appear in the day. And folklore vampires appeared in the daytime constantly. It was very common for them to be seen in the daytime. But F.W. Murnau had this entire plot line that he had worked out where he has the vampire be seduced by the heroine to linger and drink her blood and until the sun rises. And then he uses, he uses the film technique, lap and dissolve, to show the vampire literally dissolving in the rays of the rising sun. And this became a very powerful psychological image. So it became picked up primarily by film rather than fiction. And it, became, it was so immediately powerful that it has become vampire canon. But it, it has nothing to do with either folklore or early fiction. And it really doesn't make a lot of logical sense when you really think about it. But aren't they known as, um, well, you know, the creatures of the night? Well, they are in terms of, again, that's, that's a fictional convention. Uh, So-called evil beings were night beings because the night was scary to people who didn't have uh, electricity and didn't have easy ways of prov providing artificial light. And when you're blinded, when you've lost one of your senses, you feel very vulnerable. So the nighttime was obviously a scary time for people in pre-industrial, pre-modern societies. But the vampire's fear factor, as it were, came from the fact that this was a being that had been human, had been one of your loved ones, had been someone very close to you, therefore knew all your secrets, knew how to get at you, and yet now has left human society and has left the human compact behind. So now, here is this being that, that essentially has turned traitor and has developed all of these powers and that you can't trust anymore and is now unnatural. And so that was the whole reason that people were so frightened by vampires more than other supernatural creatures that had never had a human component. 
that these were the people who were close to you, who had turned traitor and were coming back to harm you or were coming back to prey on you, to get more from you than you were willing to give, or just shouldn't be there. They were supposed to be dead. They were supposed to be going on to another reality, and they were refusing to go. They were turning the rules of life upside down. And this is what made them so frightening. And they would appear, dusk and and, uh, dawn were times when supernatural creatures were often expected to appear because those were the liminal periods. And in many cultures, especially Celtic cultures, the liminal times was when you would see these beings most and not necessarily just at night. Ah, okay. Um, Moving on a bit, and this is all extremely fascinating, by the way. Um, In your vampire universe, must vampires be invited in, or can they enter a building as they please? They can come in wherever they want. They don't need an invitation. And it's interesting. The invitation is, again, that was one of Stoker's uh, uh, innovations that he he made up out of his, his extremely fertile Irish imagination. When you think about it, you would hardly have needed all of the anti-evil protections that people cooked up if you were perfectly safe as long as the vampire wasn't invited in. You know, people were hanging garlic in their windows and thorn bushes in their windows and religious icons in their windows, and, and, and none of that would have been necessary if all you had to do was make sure that nobody invited the vampire inside. But none of those worked. The vampires went darn well went where they wanted. <laughs> Okay, that, that's a good point. Yeah, why would you have to hang all the garlic if uh, they couldn't come in unless you invited them? Yeah. Now, how do your vampires become vampires? Well, again, there's differences between the different sets of, of, of vampires in the books. The books will introduce three different sets of vampires, that they're aware of each other, they know each other, but their histories are all quite different. And there isn't a real strict formula in any of the cases for how the vampires become, start as human beings and become vampires or are made vampires. In uh, Mortal Touch, it's not so much a, a specific conscious action by the vampire to pass on the vampiric state. It's more a, a general sense of contagion, and they don't really understand themselves quite how it works. In The Longer the Fall, there is an entity, a a supernatural entity that is difficult to describe outside of the context of the book, but this entity is passed on by deliberate act from one vampire to another and physically transforms the person to whom it is passed. And in that case, because that is closest to to the pure root of how my vampires are made, those vampires are, uh, they cannot be killed at all. They, their lives can be ended by a force beyond them, but they cannot be killed on the physical plane. They are literally trapped on the physical plane. They cannot choose death in any way. They cannot be killed in any way. Uh, they, are, they are earthbound, as I call it. Uh, and then there's the third set has learned over time how to specifically pass on vampirism by choice. If there are someone they want to bring into their family group, they have a family group, which is different from the other two sets. However, they are not 
they're not quite sure how it works, and it's sort of an intermediate between the situation with the other two groups of vamps. And as the stories go on, eventually I'm going to reconcile the differences and, and explain what the difference is and what the relationship is between those. But it's not a simple, it's not a simple explanation. Wow, that that sounds really interesting. I'm looking forward. I've read your first one, of course, um, but I'm looking forward to the next one to see how that develops. Um, how much blood do your vampires need to drink? Do they have to drain the victim, or do they just need to sip, or um, you know, can they get a little uh, pint in in uh, in the refrigerator, or what is their diet? They all try very hard to avoid killing human beings. And my vampires are, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say they're good guy vampires, but they are, they are moral to the extent that they are not ruthless killers, that they, they avoid killing human beings pointlessly. Uh, they usually need about, say, a, a cup to a pint several times a week. They can go with less than that, but then they get, testy and irritable. Um, they could drain a person if they, if they got carried away. It would be easy for them to do that. Uh, generally speaking, a, a sip would not be quite enough. And they can and do subsist on animal blood as much as they can, rather than human blood. But animal blood doesn't give them the same zing. So from time to time, even if they're trying to stick with animal blood, they do need human blood, and they will, they will try to find ways to get that. Uh, but they need a fair amount. So, so that would be sort of like someone who subsisted on bread and water. You could, but only for a while. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good analogy. Yeah. Now, I know the answer to this, but just for our listeners, do yours have erectile fangs or something else? My vampires have no fangs. And this, again, is going back to the, the, the history of how the vampire... Uh, conventions evolved in fiction. You know, originally, fictional vampires really did not have fangs, or they did, and they didn't. They didn't all bite in the neck. It's interesting if you go back to the 19th century. The most common place where there would be a, a bruise or contusion that indicated that someone was being preyed upon by a vampire, it was on the chest, right over the heart. It wasn't on the neck at all. That again was something that that uh, Stoker kind of codified that that the, the wound on the neck right over the, the jugular vein, uh, which made a certain amount of logical sense because that is one of the largest and most accessible veins on the human body. But during most of the 19th century, it, people looked for this little bruise right over the heart, and that would be where the vampire had been feeding on you. So my vampires are able to open and close a wound in the same way that if people have heard of a phenomenon called psychic surgery, uh, which is also something that can be reproduced under hypnosis in some, on some circumstances with very suggestible people, where you can just make someone start bleeding and make them stop through power of suggestion. But there were uh, people, especially during the 1970s in the Philippines and sometimes in South America, there were some occasions in South America that were recorded, uh, where these individuals were performing surgery with their bare hands or with can lids, and they would appear to be able to open up the body and then close it up, seal it, stop all the bleeding, uh, and this, this remained unexplained. So that, that is kind of what I adopted in, rather than, than, than saying. 
Now, getting into the biology of this, would they be accessing, like, uh, the blood from capillaries or... Because, you know, mm-hmm. I, I remember seeing the pictures you know, pictures of these psychic surgeries where they would go, let's say, into the abdomen, but it wouldn't be, like, over the aorta or anything. Yeah, they try to avoid uh, the the aorta, or um, they would try to avoid arteries uh, because an artery would bleed too fast for them to be able to stop it effectively before the person had lost too much blood. But they would go for the smaller veins, the elbow, uh, sometimes the neck if they're really careful. Um, so, yeah, they would go for the blood was accessible, but it would, it would be quick. They'd be done very, very quickly, and they'd stop. Okay. Now, their demeanor, do when they become a vampire, do be, they become nasty or nice or whatever they were in life? Basically, it's whatever they were in life, but there's one exception, and this is true for all of them, that being turned into a vampire turns off a part of their conscience that would usually inhibit people from preying on other people for their blood without permission. That in most cases, the average person would feel very guilty and would have a lot of inhibitions about just grabbing someone and taking a pint or so of blood out of them. And with my vampires, although they're not, they're not evil, something about them has just been turned off so that they're able to do that to survive without writhing in guilt all the time. And we're not talking about angsting vampires who hate what they are because that's kind of tedious. Uh, So even if they feel, gee, I should feel bad about doing that, they don't. That's that's the main change. Okay, and what about their hearing, normal or enhanced? Oh, they do have enhanced senses. All their senses are are somewhat enhanced, and their strength is enhanced, so they get those benefits. Okay. And the next question, you sort of answered. It sounds like it depends um, according to which group they're in, but are they? Do they have a hierarchy in their social group? Are they basically loners? Well, one of the differences between my fiction and what has become quite popular in vampire fiction is that I don't propose any large organization with a hierarchy and so forth of vampires. That there are, the Vampires are very rare, and they, generally speaking, kind of keep to themselves. However, uh, they, they do form small groups, small little family groups, so they'll, they'll exist in, in, in groups of, say, a pair to maybe half a dozen at most. Beyond that, you really strain the resources of any given geographical area uh, in terms of that many vampires living in one spot. Uh, so, so they are they're loners in the sense that they, 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 they're alone in the world in terms of having a history or, or a great culture or vampire councils. Uh, those sorts of things just don't exist in my universe. But they do like company. Next question. Hypnotism and mind control, not only with their intended victims, but with the victim, is there a psychic connection or not? They have a certain limited psychic connection and a very limited ability to uh, do mind control. It's not remote. They have to be, for the mind control, it can be either control or they can blot out memories. This is their chief 
mental capability which allows them, again, it's survival capability that comes to them with the vampire state, that the main way that they manage to stay undetected and the thing that allows them not to have to kill their victims to protect themselves is that they can totally blot their victims' memories out, but they have to be in direct contact to do that. Alternatively, they can use the same procedure to somewhat control the person's mind, you know, offer, put in, plan a suggestion or, for example, suggestion that they will not tell anyone what had happened, that sort of thing. This doesn't always work and it is mutually exclusive with the memory blotting, which is usually the more useful thing to do. They uh, have some psychic connection with one another, particularly if one vampire has been responsible for another one turning. There will be a connection there. But that also is, is very limited. So I really downplayed the mind control elements uh, of the vampire motif in, in my universe. And one final question. Sleeping quarters, coffins, beds, the back of an uh, old van? <laughs> Any place where there's not a lot of light. They generally sleep in beds. Uh, they tend to find the same things that comfort us in life to be comforting them for them in the afterlife. So we find beds very comforting for many psychological reasons. And my vampires are the same way. They like to sleep in beds because beds are comforting and feel safe. They do not like to sleep in coffins. I do not have one who can tolerate a coffin. <laughs> okay. Um, any other comments you'd like to make? Well, I'd like to emphasize that obviously people can choose uh, any rules whatsoever when they make a vampire universe. And the main thing is that people are consistent about their rules. You know, I'm choosing to play with a lot of these things that I know as a vampire researcher. And, you know, I'm principally interested in developing characters and throwing extraordinary or extreme situations at them and then seeing how that plays out in a realistic way for them as characters. Uh, so, you know, it's always interesting to see people come up with novel ideas for a vampire universe. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with the conventions that are more typically used. But I like to see what I can do with, with um, unique ideas and novel ideas that, that, that people don't, haven't written about quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I, actually, some of the things you've been talking about, I've just found really fascinating, a lot of things I didn't think about myself. Um, in closing, could you tell people the name of your website well, my publishing company is By Light Unseen Media, and its website is bylightunseenmedia.com. And if you go to that website, you can read about all the books we publish, my own and our other authors. And my own author website is linked on bylightunseenmedia.com. And once you go there, you can uh, pretty much reach everything that I do on the web is, is linked from there. Okay. Well, it's been fascinating. Uh, I hope the listeners get as much out of this as I did. And thanks so much for being our first interview. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to hearing from you. You can leave comments at podcast.morbanwestfield.com or through my main website, www.morbanwestfield.com.